Our next speaker is Mr. Mick Wallace. Madness. Madness. This is madness. We cannot fix a problem caused by capitalism with more capitalism. They hurt the people. I ended up at the end of a gun on three occasions. I done well to survive anyway. Madame Daly will speak. A union which allows fiscal rules to be broken for arms expenditure. But not for housing or to put roofs over the heads of people. This is evidence of police violence. Whether you're an economic migrant or you're an asylum seeker, nobody deserves to be treated like this. And even having the net to suggest separating people from their mothers. How dare you? They don't need us to kick them around the place. You could say so what? Police in riot gear with trunks. I am ashamed to call myself a European. The recognition of Guaido. is an absolute embarrassment. Now, you did use the word gobshite, and, so uh, I would re- reprimand you over them. Hello, hello, hello. <laughs> Welcome back. Everyone's back to school. <laughs> this is I Foresee Trouble with Wallace and Daly, or Daly and Wallace, whichever way you roll. I've been pushed off. The, I thought oh, it was yeah, in alphabetical this, order. Listen, Wallace is well used to playing second fiddle. <laughs> and, and my surname never features, of course, because I'm irrelevant. <laughs> and let's. Well, I can tell you, but you're, you're becoming better known than us uh, yeah. on this podcast. Everyone asked me, oh, I love listening to that Damien fella. And I said, there's something wrong with you. <laughs> It's because I talk too much. We all know that. Anyway, uh, today... Um, you just done more elocution classes than we do. Actually, when we were in the airport the other day coming back to Brussels, a girl travelling with me, a friend of my daughter's, had only recognised Damien by his voice from listening to But I do have a very characteristic voice, you know, and yeah. people say it's nice and soft-spoken and well, uh, very, very, very soothing. In fairness, it'd be hard. <laughs> <laughs> Anywho, um, yeah, we're back to school. Everyone's um, in Brussels, <laughs> more or less. Um, and there's a lot going on. You, you'll hear our last episode that we're just putting out is on the floods that happened this summer um, across uh, Europe. They're particularly bad in Belgium, um, France, Switzerland, uh, Czechia. The list goes on. But actually, just to add on to that, there's been floods all across the world. This has been an absolutely bonkers summer where we've had huge floods in China, in India, in Latin America as well. In swords. Um, swords. (laughs) Literally, it's been the most poignant example of uh, very dangerous, disastrous climate change uh, this summer. And on top of that, we've had loads of fires, uh, forest fires, mega fires, heat domes. It's been absolutely um, hard to cope with all of this different news. And in the midst of all that, we got the IPCC sixth assessment report, which just compounded everything and lots of process still there. But anyway, um, we're back in Brussels. There's the work in the parliament is rolling. And of course, um, it's hard to talk about anything else other than uh, the situation in Afghanistan today because it's really there's so much to talk about, um, a lot happening. Where do we even start, Mick? Um, well, Mick and Claire, the two of you are on the Afghanistan delegation, so that you're responsible basically with uh, EU and Afghan relations. Uh, there's how many people on that delegation? These are MEPs. There's mm. only a handful, actually. There might actually. be about 10 on it, but... But yeah. I think it was 12, 12 yeah. or 16. Mm. But, uh, so there was never more than four ever turned up. Yeah. But uh, obviously, there's one so next week now, so there'll yeah. probably be... They'll all be seen But anyway, you, you two have been very key people on, on Afghanistan in general since the start of the mandate. And of course, it, the, the engagement in that is only going to continue now for the rest of the mandate. There's a lot... Um, to go through but tell us a bit about um, first before we go into what's happening in Afghanistan just tell us about this delegation and what you do and what's what's the Well I I think the first thing to say about it is is that it's the smallest delegation in the parliament now these are groups that MEPs can join at the start of the year you opt 
for which one you want. But the fact that Afghanistan was the smallest one means it was the one that people had the least interest in. And both myself and Mick had asked for it. So we were delighted to be on it. But it's a reflection of the lack of attention and is symptomatic of exactly what's happening now that nobody was engaged or thinking about Afghanistan for the last 20 or 40 years in here. So, I mean, look, we... You know, to me, the, the lack of interest in the delegation is symptomatic of how Afghanistan was off the radar for most of the politicians in here. And now they're all crawling all over it. Now they're all, their hearts are broken. Oh, for mm. the poor Afghani people, they can't do enough to help them. But where were they for the last 20 years? Well, there was um, an Afghan uh, foreign affairs meeting two weeks ago. Actually, nearly three weeks, three weeks ago now. And um, during the recess... And given that uh, no more than four ever turned up for an Afghan delegation meeting, uh, when I looked for time to speak, and I'm on foreign affairs as well, uh, so I'm on foreign affairs and the Afghan delegation, and I couldn't even get time on the foreign affairs uh, emergency meeting in Afghanistan. There was such a clamour uh, for speaking time. Mm. and uh, But obviously it's uh, reflective of the fact that the place is a bit like the Hall Aaron. It's full of ambulance chasers and uh, uh, people looking for a bit of attention for themselves uh, because the media is all over it. And um, it's just pretty sad, really. But mm. um, anyway, I mean, there was actually another one this week. Um, I suppose it's... Um, I think what people uh, are forgetting is that um, approximately 200,000 people uh, were killed in the last 20 years in Afghanistan, but 5 million were displaced. They've done untold destruction to a country. And while the US was uh, the main leader, NATO and the EU were very happy cheerleaders. And we are heavily involved in the destruction of Afghanistan. We've caused untold misery. And uh, I don't think that anyone's going to even be held to account. And aside from that, one of the issues that I raised at the AFID meeting yesterday was that we spent a fortune in Afghanistan. The Americans spent over $2 trillion, but we've known for a long time, initially 11 years ago from Julian Assange, that the money was actually over $2 trillion of the $2.26 trillion that the Americans spent in Afghanistan went to private contractors. So the money, the war was used as a, as a, a means to transfer U.S. taxpayers' money to the private defense industry in, in the U.S., but unfortunately, and not, there was billions also went from Europe into Afghanistan. And what happened to it? Is there anyone going to be accountable for the waste of money? Lots of it went to warlords. It went to families of people involved with the government. We know that in 2001, the opium crop in Afghanistan was 185 tonnes. In 2017, it was 9,000 tonnes. It went from... Shot up, yeah. We have, we've had the, 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 the biggest military army in the world in Afghanistan for 20 years. We've had the EU in there. We've had NATO in there. And what were they doing? What were they spending all their money on? Destroying the place, killing over 200,000 people, displacing over 5 million. For what? It is such a clear case of the madness of war. Such a clear case of the madness of US imperialism. And yet... When myself and Claire have challenged that in different forms in the two years we're in the European Parliament, we were getting attacked by the mainstream media in Ireland from RTE and the Irish Times and the Examiner and the likes of them who have been very comfortable with US imperialism. Mm. I mean, maybe they'll wake up and smell the coffee. 
I mean, I think they're really important background points because now that we have the attention of the media on Afghanistan, it's kind of given ordinary people an insight into life for Afghani citizens. But Mick's point is is key. This didn't just happen when the Taliban took over. Life has been incredibly difficult in Afghanistan for many years now because of Western interference. I mean, we had the situation where 80% of people were living on less than a dollar twenty-five cents a day. Actually, you wouldn't think it, but Afghanistan last year was the second worst place in the world to be a woman. It's probably going to be first this mm. t- now after the Taliban. Yeah. But listening to some of the commentary, you think it went from being a sort of a, a bastion of peace and tranquility to utter horror. And that's the way the West is 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 posing it, like that you had the West there our values, which I find really offensive, like even when they talk about getting the people out who helped uh, the US and the EU, the translators and that, who of course were in danger and we fully support the need to evacuate those people. But when the European Parliament talks about they were there defending our values, help dare you like you're operating in a sovereign state they were there because they wanted to whatever work with women and you know have girls educated but our values as we as we as if you people in the eu have a monopoly on values when in actual fact the west was in there to really you know boost the arms industry they were never there for women's rights or anything like that so i mean on the one hand i think it's important for people i I mean I, i i'm kind of torn you know i'm kind of torn between on the one hand being Glad that people are now finally tuned into Afghanistan and then being really annoyed saying, where were you for the last 20 years? But it is an indication of the role of the media now yeah. that if the media did really inform the public, we could have a very different outcome because people in Ireland have been really an outpouring of sympathy and humanity putting pressure on the Irish government to try and increase the numbers that we should take into Ireland who are fleeing from the situation, women and girls who are unsure about what their future will be under the Taliban. And maybe we need to explain why they're fearful. What are the Taliban? What did they do before? Because this is the basis of people's fear. But we also need to explore, well, will will they be the same again? And for all these people in here who say, well, I can answer that question for you now, uh, if you want to bet on it. Well, actually, you can't because the future hasn't happened. We don't actually know what Taliban in the new era will be. They're basically the same. But, you know, changing the way you deliver your message being more can be the difference between, you know, a pretty bearable life and, uh, you know, uh, an Islamic emirate where, you know, people are locked up in their houses. And the devil is that means a hell of a lot of a yeah. difference. And we actually don't know. I mean, from what they've said so far, um, it's an open question what way they will be. Yeah, I mean, when the Afghan or when the Taliban came to power in '96, they grew out of the Mujahideen, which were formed in the early '80s, uh, funded by the US and Saudi Arabia. And people like to forget that it was the US that actually created the Taliban and Al Qaeda by building up the Mujahideen at that at that time. And I pointed out in my contribution at AFID at the Foreign Affairs Committee on Wednesday that before the Americans start funding the Mujahideen at the beginning of the 80s, half the, the people in university in Afghanistan were women. There was 
70% of the teachers in Afghanistan were women, 40% of the country's doctors were women, and 30% of the civil servants were women. Now, this was before the Americans got involved in the place, and the reason the Americans got involved in the place then was because there was a socialist government there that uh, was friendly with the Soviet Union at the time. Now, in response to the to the growth of the Mujahideen, the, the Soviets, to their detriment, um, went into Afghanistan, and they suffered badly there, and they shouldn't have went in there. It was illegal. They shouldn't. Have, they had no, no business there, mm-hmm. and they were invading a sovereign country. And just the same as we would criticize the Americans for doing that, uh, we would criticize the Russians when they do it too. And it done serious damage to Afghanistan. But the end result of it was the socialist government were thrown out, and by '96 the Taliban were in power. And they were brutal and they were horrific to the rights of women. And obviously in 2001, uh, the Americans invaded it, not because they cared anything about the women of Afghanistan, but because it was a response to 9-11. And while there was 19 people found to have been involved in the 9-11 attacks in America at that time, none of them came from Afghanistan. 16 of them came from Saudi Arabia. But given that they're a friend of Europe and the US, they weren't going to bomb Saudi. So given that bin Laden who is a Saudi as well, was in Afghanistan at the time and hiding, which he actually didn't stay in Afghanistan long. He actually just moved into Pakistan Mm. and survived for many years after that. But the Americans used it as an excuse to invade the country. Um, The Taliban were willing to hand them over, right? Well, you see, the the, the Taliban actually in 2001 said that they wanted nothing to do with bin Laden. They told the Americans that they could hand them over to a third country uh, but the Americans said, no, 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 we want to invade so they want to, What basically the point was, they said, well, show us, you know, we want them tried in a court. We're not in favour of extrajudicial sort of killings yeah. and that. Get the evidence, show us the evidence that he was involved and then we'll hand him over to a third country. And they never did, like, you know. And the, the, so there's so much to talk about with the American invasion of Afghanistan. There's a lot behind it. I think we all agree that the... The the human rights, especially of women, was the kind of retrospective plastering over the kind of justification for it. But of course, it was about uh, the war on terror, a lot about um, Bush's electability, even a lot about the funding the arms industry. Talk us a bit more behind the dynamics of the invasion. And we, well, the uh, official excuse yeah. I think was saying was that they were going in to take out Al Qaeda. That was what Bush had said was the reason for the war. But the Taliban were willing to give up Al Qaeda, and I think it's important for people the Taliban and Al Qaeda are not the same. The Taliban and ISIS are not the same. And largely in the Western media, you would think that they are. The Taliban are actually native to Afghanistan. Like their um, reign has always been just in Afghanistan itself. That's where they're operating. They're not interested in bringing a a jihad around the world. They're not recruiting foreign fighters. They're Afghani tribal people and they come from uh, Afghani society. Yeah, well, I mean, as you've made it, the point you've made earlier is that uh, have they changed we don't know yet, and you're right to say that we can't predict the future, but we do know that if the Taliban want to rebuild Afghanistan, if the Taliban want to stay in power, they cannot be like the Taliban of 96-2001 because the brutality that they brought to the table that time uh, is insufferable and their neighbours mm. will not tolerate it, aside from the different tribes in Afghanistan. And the Taliban, if they are going to survive in power in Afghanistan and get an opportunity to rebuild the country, they are going to have to have a good relationship with China, Russia, with Iran, with Pakistan. They're their neighbours. 
they're the people that will be significant for the Taliban and for Afghanistan in the years ahead. Those countries in particular, China has certain requests, Iran has certain requests, Russia has certain requests, and they involve the Taliban behaving Mm. in a much better way than they did before. Now, maybe they won't be any better. And if they are as bad as before, then we're going to have a horrific situation where a civil war mm. will break out in Afghanistan. Or and there'll that be more intervention as well. Mm. Be well, I'm not so sure. Yeah, this, they'll they'll so. be slow. Everyone will be slow to go back in there, right? Yeah. But a civil war could begin because there's an awful lot of powerful entities. A lot of these warlords have a lot of clout. And if the Taliban are bad, they there will be problems big time. Yeah. And a civil war in Afghanistan would be the worst scenario for everybody. In particular for the people of Afghanistan, it would be bad for the countries that neighbour it. And it would be bad for the whole of West Asia. So in that sense, like there does seem to be moves afoot, like for the Taliban to come up with a government that at least includes some of these other tribes and other interests who formerly were uh, on the side of the Afghan government. Now, of course, as an aside, the Afghan government has been totally exposed as being utterly corrupt uh, and unrepresentative. And in fairness, we've done programmes on that before so yeah. it was no news to us a bit of a shock to the European Union but it shouldn't have been because the evidence was there and Ghani the president himself just ran just, off yeah. with 170 million in his back pocket like you know what an absolute con man right. and they'd siphoned off a lot of the uh, coronavirus money and that as well so I mean there's huge problems in Afghanistan anyway and the EU was the biggest donor uh, to programmes there they're reliant on 80% external mm. intervention to yeah. keep the economy economy going. So there isn't going to be contributions coming across if they go back to the way they were before with some of their behaviour. And the indications are, I mean, you wouldn't think it, listening to Ireland, but if you think about it, there's been a kind of a an overthrow of the existing order. It's been relatively bloodless. Like, mm. there have been executions, of course, and that's completely unacceptable. Uh, by the Taliban on the one hand, but also by the Americans and ISIS. Uh, and in response to the ISIS attack, the Americans carried out extrajudicial uh, killings. And there's seven, Drones, yeah. there's seven girls who don't have to worry about going to school now because they're dead, mm. thanks to the Americans in response to that. You know, yeah. so yeah. I mean, I mean, there was there was seven children yeah. killed by an American drone in the last week, and you don't hear. And there's, it, like, I have, I have heard no mainstream media cover it mm-hmm. I mean how bad seven children taken out by the US drone mm. yeah. and they won't talk about it but w- another thing a, a, a dimension that we haven't really uh, touched on yet uh, which I find really nauseating is now uh, I suppose Claire's point about Ghani leaving with 169 million dollars in suitcases and he actually left 2 million in the airport by mistake they had so many suitcases okay. they lost 2 suitcases and they left 2 million dollars in cash in the airport but there's a good chance that this is EU money are they going to chase it? are mm. they going to get it back? he's in, he's in the UAE at the moment mm. uh, a, 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 a state uh, with friendly relations with the European Union are they going to look for the money back? Unlikely. And listen. Because <laughs> the, the Afghani what, people could do with it. There's a humanitarian yeah. catastrophe, a Lis- drought. Listening to the MEPs at the Foreign Affairs Committee on Wednesday, you have to be struck by the fact that they were gutted that the Americans pulled out. I was yeah. glad the Americans pulled out. Yeah. They should never have been in there in the first place. Yeah. The EU had been exposed by the American withdrawal. 
Biden said, we were never nation building. The EU said we were built nation building for 20 years. What's mm. going on? Mm. Who were they conning? Mm. This, this, was, the, the, this Afghan war has been a 20 year lie. Mm. And the European Parliament has been afraid to call it out. The MEPs have not called it out. In, before the Taliban took over in, in August, the number of Afghans living in poverty in Afghanistan has doubled since 2001 when the Americans first invaded with the Europeans and NATO. A third of the people today have no food. A third, a half have no drinking water. And two thirds of the Afghan people today have no electricity. After 20 years of nation building according to the EU, this has been a scam. Mm. And I, I don't see any MEP standing up and saying we got it 100% wrong. When actual fight, the whole thing was a lie. It was a deceit. I hope people in the Dáil will be getting up and saying that the Irish Defence Force is sending seven fellas over to help yeah. uh, educate and train the Afghani police and army. Well, that was a bit of a joke, wasn't it? Because uh, as it turned out and as had been known, a lot of that money was going into the hands of the uh, senior officers who didn't have the troops there. Uh, they weren't paying uh, the people on the ground and they weren't capable of... Um, you know, standing firm when it came to it. So the Taliban were able to take over relatively easily. And I mean, we should remember, because you wouldn't get it from the narrative, the Taliban were actually in control of pretty much huge sections of rural Afghanistan already. Uh, so it's not, OK, taking the cities is a big deal, particularly Kabul, and it's incredibly how quick uh, the apparatus fell uh, in and around Kabul. And a lot of that was done with those who had been working with the government changing sides and agreeing to go with the Taliban for a, a more peaceful solution, I suppose, to be included in the new government. And let's see, are they going to be included? Is there going to be some women? Is there going to be some Shias, you know? It, it, was, it was estimated 11, 10 years ago, in 2011, that the Taliban had control of 50% of territorial Afghanistan. 50% mm. in 10 years ago. And, but yet, we were being spun the lie. We're making progress. Things are getting better. Bugger all progress was being made. Mm. In the countryside, nothing had changed. Well, mm. it was. you could even say that things were really bad and almost got worse in the countryside as well with raids and things like this and the creation of resentment under the US occupation, which was a huge factor of support for the Taliban in these rural areas where then the Taliban just walked in and just completely didn't have to fight actually all this way to the cities. So... International law is in trouble. The mm. Americans haven't respected international law for a long time, in particular since the end of the Second World War. Israel doesn't respect international law. And more and more, the EU is showing disrespect for the international law by going down the sanctions route, which are illegal unless sanctioned by the UN. But what I find absolutely soul-destroying is that the lack of accountability. Like, for example... For 20 years, the Irish government have allowed US military planes to go through Shannon, to land in Shannon, every year for 20 years engaging with Afghanistan. We have allowed civilian planes bring munitions through Irish airspace that were used for 20 years. Who made those decisions in Ireland? And all the government sense, the Fine Gael, Fianna Fáil, the Greens and Labour that signed off on allowing this to happen, if we had real international law, if we had international justice, people would be held to account for this. But no one has been held to account for it. There's no one been held to account in the Irish government, in the EU, 
at the US, these people don't face justice. Mm. The likes of Obama, Bush, Trump, Tony Blair. Blair. I mean, <laughs> these guys should be in prison. Yeah. But they're not. Mm. And But also, the people in the Irish government who made decisions that allowed this to happen. And then we turn around and we say that, oh, we will take 140 refugees from Afghanistan. And let me tell you, these will be people that were working yeah. for either the EU or the US structures in Afghanistan and who could rightfully feel that their lives were in danger out there. 140. What if we took a refugee for every US plane that went through Irish airspace or landed in Shannon over the last 20 years. Suppose we took one refugee for each plane. We'd be taking several thousands. We'd be taking thousands of Afghans in. Thousands, not 140. Thousands, we're a say. joke we are. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah. And, and the Irish media are as scared to call it out. Mm. They will not call the truth about it. The same as they're afraid to speak the truth about Julian Assange. Journalism is in as much trouble as international law. Um, let's talk a little more about um, next steps with the international recognition of the Taliban. Like, what's what can well, we expect? Well, I mean, the Taliban are happen? there. The yeah. Taliban are in power but now. The, they have taken Afghanistan, and the world yeah. has to deal with that. The so. West is in a really tricky position yeah, because they've been U.S. imperialism has been has had lost a huge war here. Um, what does Europe do? Well, even the EU <laughs> recognises that they have to talk to the Taliban. Yeah. The idea that the country should be sort of cut off and left there would be absolutely ludicrous. So there needs to be a leverage, I think, with the uh, with what the Taliban wants. And the Taliban do want to be an internationally recognised government. They do want the sanctions against some of their leaders and that lifted and all the rest. Um, so that kind of leverage can be played and they will need money and help because a lot of the Taliban fighters are very poorly educated. They wouldn't have the ability to run the economy and actually when they were in power before, things were really bad and the people were turning against them because they couldn't deliver for people. And with the economic situation in Afghanistan being catastrophic because of the drought on top of the wars, I mean, let's remember... Afghanistan has been the most dangerous country in the world for the last number of years, the last number of years. So there's so many problems already there. So the international community can't walk away from that. There does have to be a humanitarian response. But I think mixed points about learning the lessons are key because the narratives are saying, yeah, there were problems over the last 20 years, but we don't need to deal about that now because we need to deal with the humanitarian situation now. And yes, we absolutely do need to deal with the humanitarian situation. Now, Ireland does need to take more. The EU has 35,000 applications for asylum from Afghanistan at the moment. That's absolutely nothing. It's 0.1% of the Afghani population. Most of the refugees and the people desperately trying to flee are going to end up in Pakistan and Mm. Iran. And there is going to need to be help there. But there is going to be mixed right. The people getting out and getting the help and getting on the planes are the ones who are connected. And they do need help and I'm not begrudging them or anything. But there are families of Afghani people all over Ireland who are desperate to get their relatives out there. The Irish government needs to expand the criteria for family reunification a lot of people have responded um, generously to Mm -hmm. offer to help fund families to come over a bit like the time years ago with the Vietnamese uh, the boat people Uh, we need to you know respond and deal with all that humanitarian things but we cannot have the solution being an EU army we have to learn can you imagine (laughs) Joseph Burrell's answer to the biggest army in the world being defeated by the Taliban who are now they were going to surrender 20 years ago now they're in power, but better armed and secured than before. And Much Joseph Burrell's answer is, well, the EU has to develop its own army now. You could not make that up. 
Yeah, I mean, so much for not learning the lesson. Militarization of the planet is not a positive thing. The militarization of Europe is not a positive thing. And you would you would like to think that they would learn some lessons from the total mindless destruction that has taken place over 20 years and their failure to listen to anyone that was prepared to highlight it, like Assange. Well, look, I mean, I think everybody now knows that this has been a disaster. But actually, that knowledge was already out there. And I mean, Julian Assange, who is facing trial for extradition to the US, where he faces 175 years in a maximum security prison. He's already in a maximum security prison where he's held for telling the truth about this. So... He gave that evidence publicly. I mean, WikiLeaks released nearly 100,000 field reports from soldiers on the ground from the war in Afghanistan dating between 2004 and 2010, which showed exactly what everybody knows now. But he was saying it then. And this truth teller is the person whose life is in danger for exposing uh, war crimes. So what we wanted to do now was to go back a bit and look at some of the interviews and press conferences from 2010, basically to listen to Julian's own words, to remind ourselves that even now that the US has withdrawn from Afghanistan, the war on journalism is still going on. It shows the power of journalism, but it also shows what... Um, can be learned and I mean we should deal with that because here's a a clip uh, from Julian talking to the Guardian uh, about the significance of the documents that he published. The significance of this material is both the overarching context that is it covers the entire war since 2004 and individual events which are also significant. Um, It includes um, detail about how the war is supported in various ways. So how the um, political class in Kabul interfaces with US military and intelligence, how the corruption uh, is spread through that community, but also how the war is mediated by Pakistan. The next clip is actually from a press conference in July 2010 when he launched the documents. We wanted to include this because while the mainstream press wanted to focus on the big atrocities in the materials, Julian also wanted people to recognise that the small events were also important, that they all add up and that it was the war itself that was the problem, not just the mass killings. I'm often asked this question, what is the most single damning revelation? What is the thing that is easily capturable, the single event, the single personality, the single mass killing? Uh, but that is not the real story of this material. The real story of this material is that it's war. It's one damn thing after another. It is the continuous small events, the continuous deaths of children, insurgents, allied forces, the maimed people. Search for the word amputation in this material, or amputee, And there are dozens and dozens of references. So this is the story of the war since 2004. And like most of the accidents that occur on the road are as a result of cars, not of buses, most of the deaths in this war are as a result of the everyday squalor of war. 
not the big incidences. That said, of course, there are reports with high kill counts uh, in this material. For example, a single report uh, taking place in on August the 9th, 2006, has a kill count of 181. One wounded, one uh, one wounded, zero detained. What is the circumstance behind that report? Well, it's part of Operation Medusa, but the full circumstance is not yet known. According to the report, an AC-130 gunship is a cargo plane which has been fitted out with cannons all along one side, circled around for three hours and killed 62 of those people. If we add up all the deaths in that report, we get about 80. Uh, the deaths of the other 100 are still unexplained. There are many reports like that. They look, ex look very suspicious, but the full details are not yet explained. We can see uh, the behaviour of Task Force uh, 373, a special forces assassination squad, a kill or capture squad, uh, involved in pursuing the JPEL, the Joint Priority Effects List, a euphemism for the US assassination list, kill or capture list uh, in Afghanistan. There are many events associated with that, um, some that uh, resulted in the, the deaths of... Um, one that resulted in the deaths of seven children and others that resulted in the deaths of a number of other innocents. Uh, for, that, for that list, we can also see how people get on the list. They seem to be recommended by regional governors in Afghanistan or by intelligence authorities, often with, it appears, little evidence and, of course, no judicial review. It is up to a court to decide clearly whether something is, in the end, a crime. That said, prima facie, there does appear to be evidence of war crimes in this material. I think it's, it's kind of equally frightening and shocking to be sitting here listening to this, you know, when you know that Julian is in Belmarsh, when you know that the truth was out there and spelt out so powerfully and we had another 10 years of death and destruction because of that information being uh, ignored. And I think the next clip that he, he made at a, an anti-war uh, rally in 2011 was really powerful because he explained that it wasn't about helping Afghans, it was about business. Because the goal is not to completely subjugate Afghanistan. The goal is to use Afghanistan to wash money out of the tax bases of the United States, out of the tax bases of European countries, through Afghanistan and back into the hands of a transnational security elite. That is the goal i.e. the goal is to have an endless war, not a successful war. It's, it's important to remember how the United States government responded to these publications almost immediately. People forget how committed the Obama administration was to the war in Afghanistan. And here is Jeff Morrell, the Pentagon press secretary, responding to the WikiLeaks in August 2010, just after they were published. These documents are the property of the U.S. government, and contain classified and sensitive information. The Defense Department demands that WikiLeaks return immediately to the U.S. government 
All versions of documents obtained directly or indirectly from the Department of Defense databases or records. WikiLeaks's public disclosure last week of a large number of our documents has already threatened the safety of our troops, our allies, and Afghan citizens who are working with us to help bring about peace and stability in that part of the world. Public disclosure of additional Defense Department classified information can only make the damage worse. The only acceptable course is for WikiLeaks to take steps immediately to return all versions of all of these documents to the U.S. government and permanently delete them from its website, computers, and records. You just said, um, and it's a technical cyber question, I guess. You said return to their rightful owners. So this is the, these documents belong to the United States government. They don't belong to WikiLeaks. They don't belong to anyone else. Bit mad when you hear him saying that it was WikiLeaks that was threatening the safety of American troops and Afghan citizens and uh, that it was WikiLeaks that was damaging their peace and stability efforts. My God, but uh, Julian was well able to answer that one. We're familiar with groups whose abuse we expose attempting to criticise the messenger to distract from the power of the message. Uh, and we don't see any difference... Uh, in the White House's response to this case um, to the other groups that we have exposed. We have a harm minimization process. Our goal is just reform. Our method is transparency, but we do not put the method before the goal. We have a serious endeavor. We do things in policy. We do not do things in an ad hoc way. Uh, so, so far, our harm minimization procedures have always worked, to our knowledge. No one has ever been physically harmed by the material we have released, uh, even though we have uh, caused the change uh, of governments and many other serious reforms. Um, we have tried hard to make sure that this material does not um, uh, put innocence at harm. Uh, all the material is over seven months old, so is of no current oper operational consequence, uh, even though it may be of very significant investigative uh, consequence. As everyone knows, Julian ended up trapped in the Ecuadorian embassy in London for seven years, and the reason he always gave was that he feared a US indictment, which could result in him being extradited to the US to face prosecution for doing journalism about US wars. Now, we all know that he was right, and when he was eventually kicked out of the embassy, the US unsealed its indictment, and he has been three years in prison now facing extradition. But for those seven years that he was in the embassy, so many people denied that he had anything to worry about. They said he was paranoid. But if you go back and look, as early as August in 2010, you had US officials on record making threats of a criminal prosecution. And here's the same Jeff Morell again. Could it involve legal action as the next step? Well, I don't want to speculate as to what it could involve. Um, obviously, this is a matter that has gotten the attention not just of this department, but of the, the entire United States government. As we've talked about before, the Secretary of Defense brought the FBI into this investigation very early on. Uh, the Department of Justice is also involved in this matter. So those are two entities which have the authority, the wherewithal, should they choose to approach this in, uh, through the legal system. That is not what, we have, what I am announcing here. What I am announcing here is a request, a demand of WikiLeaks, 
the organization uh, to do the right thing and to not further exacerbate the damage that has been done by them to date and return to us all the information that was illegally <clears throat> passed to them and to expunge it from their website and all their records. Some neck, um, and you'd be wondering where the EU, who love press freedom so much, were uh, at that time. Because what the Pentagon was demanding was that WikiLeaks basically undo journalism. I mean, they'd already published um, their journalism about the war in Afghanistan, and the Pentagon was demanding that they, who weren't even American in the first place, and they weren't even in on in America, unpublish their journalism about America and delete all the records. Now, no journalist would ever agree. To to that. Of course, Julian stood firm and stood by his principle and that's why he's been prosecuted now. So here is a last clip from Julian about the importance of controversial journalism. If journalism is good, it is controversial by, by its nature. Uh, it is the role of good journalism to take on powerful abuses. And when powerful abuses are taken on, there is always a back reaction. So we see that controversy um, and we I believe that is a, a good thing to engage in. And in this case, um, it will show the, the true nature of this war. And then the, the public from Afghanistan and other nations um, can see what's really going on and take steps to address the problems.